Blog Talk Radio. If it had not been for you, we would not be here. We opened our eyes this morning, God, because you gave us the strength to open our eyes. We were able to rise because you gave us strength in our limbs and the facilities of our body. We were able to get here, God, because you blessed us and brought us the way of safety and did not allow harm to come to us, Lord. We're grateful to again come into your presence because we know where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And as we come before you today, have your way, Lord. Let flesh be crucified that you might be glorified. 
that your people might be edified in the name of Jesus. For God in you is life. And that's what we seek, God, life, eternal life, God. We pray, O oh God, today that you will touch every person that have come seeking you, Lord. Bind the hand of the devil, God. Rebuke the hand of the enemy, Lord. God, let your anointing that resonates in this place even now. God, let there be an outpouring on your people. We need you, God, to take us to another level in you, Lord. God, we're faced with demonic forces, God. Evil spirits have come up against us, Lord, and we need to be fortified with your power. God, we can't make it on our own strength, God. We don't have enough to stand on, Lord, but we know, God, that your joy is our strength. Fill us up on today in the name of Jesus. Somebody have come this morning burdened down, God, with the issues of life, God. Somebody, God, is in the battle of their life. Somebody's, God, fighting in their mind and in their spirit, Lord, where the devil have come in to war against them, Lord. But we thank you, God, because we know greater are you that's within us than he that is within this world, God. We know, God, that you are a deliverer, Lord, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're no short of your promise, Lord, and you're able to deliver us, Lord. Touch us on today, Lord. We need you like never before. Fill us up with the Holy Ghost, God, uh, and give us a refilling, Lord, uh, that when we leave here today, Lord, uh, we can leave with your anointing, Lord, uh, that as we meet men and women, boys and girls, uh, they might be converted to know who you are, Lord. Uh, in the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Uh, we thank you because you are a healer. Uh, you're the God that healeth thee, uh, and healing is in your wings, uh, and you're able to touch our feeble bodies. Uh, you're able to save our troubled souls. Uh, and in the name of Jesus, uh, bind every demon, Lord, uh, every demonic force, Lord, uh, God, that comes to keep us uh, in the same place, Lord. Uh, we're willing, God, to surrender uh, and say yes to your will, Lord. Uh, we're willing to turn our lives, God, uh, over into your hands, Lord, uh, because we come to the place, God, uh, where we realize like never before, uh, we need you, Jesus. Uh, more than anything we know, uh, we need you, Jesus. Uh, while men are trying to find God, uh, solutions to this chaotic world, God, uh, we're looking to you, Lord, uh, because we know for every right desire, uh, there is an answer, uh, and Jesus, you're that answer. Uh, there's no need for us, God, uh, to turn hither or thither, Lord. Uh, we need but to look for you, Lord, uh, because you're the answer, God, uh, for our troubled lives, Lord. Uh, touch on the day, God. Uh, break every yoke, oh God. Uh, save on the day, God. Uh, Deliver on the day, God. Jesus, we need you, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We're crying out to you, Lord. We know that you're able to save our souls. We know that you're able, God, to heal our bodies, Jesus. We know that you're able, God, to turn our situations around. Jesus, no other help we know. No other help we know. No other help we know, God. You're able able, Jesus, to deliver our children. You're able, Jesus, to 
save the unsaved husband. You're able, Jesus, to heal the cancer patient. Nothing too hard for you, Jesus. No other God we know. We know that you're able, Jesus. We know that you're able, Jesus. We say yes to your will, God. Yes to your way, Lord. Have your way, Jesus. And we'll thank you for it. And we'll give your name the praise. And we'll bless you, Lord. Yes, we thank you, Lord. And we bless your holy name. Come on, open your mouth and give the Lord some praise. talking both of them were Christian but one had backslid and they gotten into a conversation and the backslider was complaining because everything had gone wrong for him Christian was trying to encourage him. And in the conversation, it went something like this. Because sometimes, no matter how strong you've been in the faith, Things will go wrong for you. I just want to leave this with you tonight. This is what they were saying. You say you've been sick. Just two folk having a conversation. The Christian said, Tell me about it. Tell me about it. He said, You say. Christian kept on asking him. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? 
talking. The man said, not only am I sick, but I'm in trouble. Say you're in trouble. The Christian said, tell me about man said, I got to go to court. He said, you're going to court. You got to go to court. Next week. The Christian said, that's all right. Go on. Can I get a witness? 
tell you how to work. Tell me about it. All your bills are past due. later after giving birth to uh, my son I was leaving my aunt's house to go meet my boyfriend and as I was leaving and pushing the stroller across the street I heard a big crash and I knew it was some kind of car accident and I see my little brother just running and I asked him my little brother was with my boyfriend I asked him I said hey where's you know and he said he got hit by the car you can see that it was pretty bad. Uh, he was crying, he was repenting. The paramedics came, rushed him to Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx where he was pronounced dead. And I just thought about him repenting and asking God to forgive him of his sin. And that kept playing over and over in my mind. And the church that he took me to, they came and they found where I lived. They witnessed to me right there in my living room. And they asked me, they said, if you were to die, Today, where would you spend your long eternity? When I was five years old, I was taken away from my mom, myself and five other siblings. Um, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, it was a social worker that came into our house and there were police. They came in and they took us and put us in the back of a um, police car, myself and my other siblings. We were put in to one foster home, and in this foster home, um, there were other foster children there. They split up my sister and one of my brothers, or actually two of my brothers, and they placed me with one of my older sisters. And in this foster home, the foster mom, she, she didn't really speak English. Um, they spoke a lot of Spanish. and. Um, she shaved off me and my sister's hair. You know, we always had long hair. She shaved our heads like boys. Um, I remember one time, I was five, I didn't have problems using the bathroom or anything, but she would put a pamper or a diaper on me and I would have to lay on the uh, a workout bench, a bench where, you know, guys, they, they work out on in the gym. And I had to stand in the corner and I would have to eat um, sometime the meat was pulled off the bones and it was just bones that she gave me. Eventually they took notice that uh, we weren't being treated well in this foster home and they placed us in a different foster home, which was in Brooklyn, New York. And in this foster home, our foster mom, she was much older, 
So we called her grandma. She had other grandchildren. So we called her grandma. She treated us wonderful, wonderful. She grew our hair back. Uh, we were in school. She fed us, you know, no problems. But being so young and not understanding why I was taken away from my family, I became very violent. I began to fight at such a young age, at six years old. I was already seeing a psychiatrist. I don't remember everything, but I was told that I would, during school, I would take a chair and hit other children in the head. And so I was told that I had to see a psychiatrist, that I had a lot of uh, issues. But I can remember just being angry. I became very angry. I was violent. I wanted to go home, wanted to be with my family. I'm just a child. I don't understand why I was taken away. And I started to see this psychiatrist. And I did not know my father. Um, I don't have memories of my mother being around at such a young age. Um, and this psychiatrist would ask me questions about my father. I did not know my father. And the psychiatrist would ask me if my father would hit me with chains and ask me things that just wasn't true and say that I've said these things. And I can remember as young as I was that these things were false. It wasn't true, but they were writing these things down and claiming that I said that, you know, my father has done these things to me. So we're in a foster, foster home in Brooklyn for a few years, loved the family. Um, like I said, I was very violent. I was bad. Um, not sure if uh, she was supposed to whoop me, but I got a lot of whoopings. Um, my sister, I remember being in a foster home and my sister, she just seemed like there was no problem. She's older than I, I am. And she seemed like she didn't have a problem with being there. And I remember one time just seeing her, she seemed happy. And I threw dirt in her eyes because I couldn't understand why she seemed so happy with a family that, you know, does not belong to us. We don't belong to them. And I just wasn't doing well in school. You know, I was always getting in trouble, fighting, having problems. A few years passed, you know, being in the foster system, uh, it was every once in a while we get to meet up with our other siblings who were also in foster care. Most of the time, my grandmother was at the visits. My aunt came sometime, but I can only remember my mother one time, maybe once or twice coming. And I will always wonder, you know, where's my mom? Where's my mom? But my grandmother always came. A few years passed. My mother was able to get custody of us. Uh, because my grandmother was present in the home. And we go home, my mother's, she's not there to take care of us. It was my grandmother who always raised us and took care of us. So at this time, I'm growing up 10 years old, 11 years old. I finally find out the reason why I was taken away, why I was taken away, why my siblings, my sisters, my brothers were taken away. And it was due to my mom's drug addiction. And when I found out that my mom was on drugs, I didn't understand too much, but I realized, you know, she's my mom. She chose a different life over her children, you know, drugs. And we went home to be with our mom who was barely there. My grandmother continued to raise us, had us in school. We lost the apartment and we were forced to go stay with my aunt in the South Bronx. Um, this was an overcrowded apartment. 
you know, it was a three-bedroom. My aunt has her children, her six children, and it's nine of us. My mother has nine kids, you know, and she's never raised any of us. And so we're here in um, this overcrowded apartment, sharing a bed, you know, in my family, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of people who were working. Mom was on public assistance, you know, on, on public assistance. My grandmother was a teacher in a school. She tried her best to take care of us, but you know, she's up in age. You know, here she is raising, trying to raise nine kids with the help of my aunt. And it's during this time that I began to turn to the streets. I began to, because I'm looking for love. I don't have that love at home. And my family, even though my grandmother was raising us, I've never experienced love. I've never heard, I love you. I've never heard anything positive. I, I was pretty bad, you know, growing up. So I always heard negative things. And so I turned to the streets. And sometimes that happens when you're looking for love. You turn to all the wrong things. And so I turned to the streets. I'm living in a, you know, poor neighborhood, in a neighborhood where everybody else, their parents are either on drugs, an alcoholic, and the children have the same issues that I have. Either they were in foster care or they're just running the streets themselves because their parents, um, they have no guidance. Like I did not have any guidance. And so I turned to the streets and I'm doing my own thing. I was coming in and out the house when I wanted to at a young age. I started smoking weed at 12 years old, going to school, cutting school. Um, I was fighting everybody. I was always getting into fights. But I also did well in school. I played a lot of sports. I was active in school on a cheerleading team, a volleyball team. I was on a basketball team and no support. You know, I always realized I had two friends growing up and I noticed that their mom and their stepfather, they both had stepfathers, was active in their life and supported them. And when I did do, do well in school, there was no one there. There was no one there to support me. There was no one to say, great job, Shana. There was no one there to say, I love you. You know, no one there to come to my games, no one there to cheer me on when I had competitions. I did not get a chance to experience that growing up. And so it continued to make me angry and make me um, resent my mother. So whenever my mother came around, even though I loved her, I loved her, I would stay, stay up sometimes hours to the next day hoping that my mother would come. Sometimes we didn't see her for days. Sometimes we didn't see her for weeks. Sometimes we didn't hear from her until we, she called from jail. She was always in and out of jail. She was gone. And in my neighborhood, there's a lot of drug dealers, and there were a lot of um, drug addicts, people who were addicted to drugs who were friends of my mom. And sometimes when I didn't see her, she was gone for maybe a week, few days. I would go to these people. I would ask drug dealers, have you seen my mom? I would ask her friends who also does drugs for her, have you seen my mom? Just always looking for her. And it built, I, I, I became so angry because now I'm growing up and I'm understanding more of, you know, what a mother should be and I don't have that mother. I, I'm seeing my friends, you know, have a, a family life, have love, and I want it. I was jealous of them. I was so jealous of them. Um, plenty of times, sometimes I would stay overnight at their house. I would get a, you know, a good meal to eat. And my family, don't get me wrong, my family cooked. 
um, but they didn't always have, you know, enough in a sense of um, where we always had a home-cooked meal. They were struggling as well. Again, nine of us mixed with six other, you know, my cousins and my aunt is taking care of her children, trying to raise us. My grandmother's trying to work, you know, and provide for us. And my mother would have, she gets public assistance, but she didn't spend it on us. I remember there was times when I did see her. And in order for me during those days, just to get $5 or $10, I would have to follow her to the check cash in place just to get that from her because she will disappear with the money. Or when my birthday was coming up, you know, I would have to go around asking for money. There were times just coming out of school and my friends, you know, they would be in a Chinese store. I don't even have a dollar. I don't have no money to buy French fries or something that, you know, we, I love to buy after school and I didn't have money and they would have to share with me, you know, so, it caused me to turn to the streets even more. I, like I said, I started smoking weed at 12. I started to hate myself. I would look in the mirror and I would hate myself because I was always told that I'm gonna either be like my mother, I was gonna either die early or be in jail or be on drugs. So every time I heard those negative things concerning my mother and, and you know, um, people making a connection with me concerning that, it made me hurt myself, hate myself. And so whenever I looked in the mirror, I would just think of those things, think of my mom. And so I began to pierce my face, get piercings, trying to change my appearance. I started to get tattoos at 14 years old. I was just trying to find a way to fit in, trying to find a way to feel loved. And so I turned to gangs, turned to gangs where I had to do things that, you know, I didn't want to do in the sense of fighting. I had to hurt a lot of people. I had to do a lot of things. Um, at 14 years old, well, at 13 years old, I tried to commit suicide. The thought that came into my mind where I wanted to commit suicide because I hated my life. I had just gotten into an argument with my aunt. My mother wasn't there. Um, she was missing for a few days. And I just said, I don't, I don't wanna live anymore. And so I took a knife and I put it to my neck and just poking my neck was so painful. And I said, okay, I can't do it this way. And so I put it to my stomach to the side and it was still painful. And I said, okay, I can't die this way. Then I found a rope that we use um, to jump double dutch. And I tied it around my neck and tied it to the bunk beds. We had a big wooden bunk bed in the room and I tied it to the bunk beds and I kneeled down so that I can hang myself, but it, it was so uncomfortable and I could feel myself suffocating. So I said, I, I don't want to die this way either. Too painful, didn't like the feeling. And I saw these pills and I knew if I take these pills, I'll die in my sleep, it would be pain-free. And so there was a relative there, an aunt that I had just met. She's a few years older than I was from my grandfather's side. Um, I didn't know I recently met her. She was there and I told her, I said, I'm gonna kill myself. And she said, I dare you. And because she said, I dare you, made me wanna do it even more. And here she is, one of my younger sisters were there at the time and she was telling me, no, no. You know, she said, Shana, don't kill yourself. And my aunt, um, she was encouraging me. 
she was encouraging me. She was saying, I dare you, I dare you, do it. You won't do it, you won't do it. And I took all five of those bottles, all five. I took it. I took those pills, and I knew that in my sleep I was going to die. But by the grace of God, I woke up. But when I woke up, I felt the effects of the, the pills. And so I grabbed the bottle of pills, and I went to my grandmother, and I just put them all on her lap. And that's all I could remember. The next thing I remember was um, I woke up with them pumping my stomach. And I was in the hospital. My mom was there. And as sad as it is to say this was the first time, you know, the first experience where I felt like my mom loves me because she, she was there, you know, even though it took something so horrible, you know, to, to, for her to seem like she cares or, you know, for her to be around. And um, just the fact that she was there during this time, I felt relieved. I'm not going to say I felt love, but I felt like, you know what, she cared a little bit. You know, and at one point it was making me believe that I got to do these things in order to get some kind of love for my mom. But unfortunately, after being in the hospital for a little while, um, being on suicide watch, uh, I was released. My mom went back to living her life. I went back to running the streets. More gangs, smoking, coming home whenever I wanted, cutting school. So I decided at 15 years old that I would sell crack. I'm not working, you know, my mom is not here, I don't know my father. So at 15 years old, I started to sell crack, I started to sell weed from my aunt's house. She had no clue that I was doing it from her house. Um, I'm sure she found out when she started to see them knock on the door looking for me, when she saw other um, drug addicts come and knock on the door for me. And also at 15 years old, I met a young man I was going to a high school on Fordham Road with some friends, actually to fight. <laughs> and there was a car passing by. And this car, from this car window, a young man yelled out, hey, hey. And I thought he was talking to my friends. Um, and he got out and he was talking to me. I was only 15 years old and um, I knew he was older. I knew he was older, but I lied about my age. And I met this young man, and um, I started to fall in love. It's the first time I could say that I've experienced love. Someone who loved me, someone who told me positive things. I've never had anyone tell me I was beautiful, I was talented. You know, I've never had anyone say that they love me. And here is this young man that I met who was telling me the things that I wanted to hear, and I wasn't even having sex with him yet. He took me everywhere. He bought me things. He bought me clothes. He bought me shoes. You know, he was doing things that I wanted from my own family that I was not getting. I was not receiving. But something about him changed me where I calmed down in fighting. And he was older than me. He was actually six years older than me. And he did not know my correct age because I lied about my, my age to him. And so I knew that my 16th birthday was coming up and he was a rapper. So when I met him, I recognized him immediately from his videos on TV. He was a famous rapper, he was in a group. I don't wanna mention the group's name, but um, yeah, he was a famous rapper. They had videos on BET, all, all over TV. 
And so he took me everywhere, took care of me, um, and I began to change. I began to change. I, I stopped fighting, and I wasn't given so much trouble. I didn't want to be home anymore. I just wanted to be with him. And I knew that, you know, because of his age and he's famous, everywhere we went, people wanted his autograph. Girls wanted pictures with him. I knew eventually I would have to be intimate with him. And I've never been intimate before. I've had boyfriends before in a sense where during that time, you know, we just claim each other. This is, you know, my boyfriend. He say I'm his girlfriend. Nothing too serious. I had my first kiss with someone in the past before him, but I've never been intimate with anyone. And so I knew that this young man is much older than I am. I know that he, you know, he's experienced sexually. Um, he's sexually active. And so I decided I would ask someone, what is the right age to have sex? And I was told 16. And my 16th birthday was coming up. And so it was on my 16th birthday where I decided I'm going to sleep with him. He did not ask me, but I decided I was going to sleep with him. I got pregnant. I got pregnant my first time being intimate. I did not know I was pregnant until three months later. Now, you know, even though I was running the streets and messed up, I didn't watch porn. I wasn't into any kind of sexual, you know, things or anything like that. I didn't, we didn't have TV. The times were different than, you know, it is today. We had one TV that we watched. We didn't have cable. So, you know, I wasn't into, I didn't, I didn't take, um, we didn't, they didn't teach us about sex in school during that time or anything like that. So I wasn't aware of, condoms. I wasn't aware of how to protect myself. I wasn't aware of how you get pregnant or anything like that. I had no mother around to tell me these things. No one has taught me these things. 16, I'm pregnant and I'm in love. I want to spend the rest of my life with this young man. So I find out, I go to the hospital, to the emergency one day for um, stomach pains, and I find out that I'm pregnant. And I'm like, how am I going to tell, you know, I asked the doctor, I said, um, how did I get pregnant? And the doctor looked at me, he said, you're having sex and you don't know how you got pregnant. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but this is exactly what happened. And this was the first time where I had someone explaining to me, you know, sex and what I've done and how it happened. So I had to tell my boyfriend that I was pregnant. And so I told him, but I told my grandmother first. And my grandmother said, well, you know, you can get an abortion. You're still in high school. You're not ready for a baby. And I didn't know what abortion was at first. And she explained to me, and I was all for it. I can't have a kid. Uh, you know, my life is screwed up. I don't know what it's like to be a mother because I've never had one. How am I going to raise a kid in the environment that I'm in? to go through the same, same exact things that I've gone through. And so I was all for getting abortion. And when I told my boyfriend that I was gonna get an abortion, it's when he told me it was a sin. And when I found out he was a backslider and that he did know Jesus Christ at one point. And so... And, and Shana, for anybody who doesn't know, um, just the term even backslider, um, if you could just explain what, what exactly that is. 
So a backslider is someone who was with the Lord, someone who was saved, born again, but they turned away from God mm -hmm. and decided to get entangled back into the world. Just to be plain, they decided to live for the devil again. They turned away from Jesus Christ. And so he's in the world and um, he's in sin. This is when he started to tell me that we're sinning. We're in sin. And I didn't fully understand. I'm 16 years old. But what I did understand was that he said abortion was murder. He said it was a sin and that God would judge me for it. And I said, I don't want to be judged. And he told me about hell. And I said, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to keep my baby. And I told my grandmother I was going to keep my baby. She wasn't too happy about it. At this time, my mom is serving years in jail. She's in jail serving some time. Um, she's always been in and out of jail for her drug addiction, for prostitution. You know, that comes along with that kind of lifestyle. She just always was in trouble. So she wasn't around during this time, you know, for me to let her know that I'm pregnant, for me to let her know I have a boyfriend, you know. So I'm 16, I'm pregnant, I'm keeping my baby. My family's not too happy about it. I'm not sure how to raise a child. I don't know how it's going to work out. I'm not working. I'm still in high school. I'm living with um, my aunt still in an overcrowded apartment. I'm not making any kind of money. So how am I going to take care of this child? And my boyfriend said, we're going to live together and take care of this child. So um, that's what I expected. One day, he asked me, he said, uh, can you come with me to church to pay my tithes? And so I said, yes. I didn't think I would be going upstairs in a church with him to pay his tithes. But he invited me. And as soon as I walked into the door, the pastor was saying, she said, if you are having sex with someone that is not your husband or your wife, she said it was fornication. She said it's a sin. You can go to hell for it. And at 16 years old, I'm five months pregnant now, I heard this, and it's bothering my mind. And I'm sitting there listening to this pastor preach. I don't know anything about God, but what she said is bothering my spirit. It's bothering me. I'm feeling convicted. I didn't know that I was feeling convicted, but I knew what I was doing, what she said I was doing was wrong, is wrong. And so I asked my boyfriend, I said, you know, the pastor said that it's a sin having sex with someone who is not your spouse, you're not married to, it's a sin. And that's when he confessed to me and he started to tell me, yes, it's a sin. And he started to tell me more about God, that, you know, one day we're going to die and God is going to judge us. We're going to have to stand before God and give an account for our soul. And it put fear in me. It put fear in me. I'm pregnant and I'm having a baby by someone I'm not married to. And in my family, I don't know anyone that's married. I've seen guys come and go. So there was nothing positive that I can really say that I've witnessed in my family other than my grandmother working hard and growing up, my uncles, they weren't like our uncles. They didn't talk to my mom. You know, so they never really had a relationship with us, you know, so um, I didn't really see anything positive in my family. And I had to tell my boyfriend my correct age. 
He did not know my correct age. I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby by him. I had to tell him my correct age. I would say he was pretty devastated, shocked when he found out how old I was. He was six years older than I was. And he can go to jail for me. And going to these doctor's appointments, he would come and the doctor, I would have to see a social worker. When they found out my, my boyfriend's age at the time, they didn't like it. They didn't like that he was older. They wanted to know if I was, you know, raped or if I'm being forced to have this baby. And I was trying to explain to them, no, I'm in love. Um, my, my family knows that I'm pregnant. They're okay with me having a baby. Uh, well, even though they weren't too okay, they had no choice. Um, I did what I wanted to do. And so we're in love and um, I'm feeling convicted about having sex with a man that I'm not married to and him telling me about God. So I stopped having sex with him. I got pregnant at 16 on my 16th birthday and I gave birth during 16 before I turned 17. So me being 16, I went through so much, so much just within that one year. I give birth to uh, my son, my boyfriend. He loves him, his only child. I love him. Even though I did not know what it was like to be loved by, you know, my mother or to be loved by my father, I knew that I loved this baby that I've just given birth to. And I knew that I did not want to treat this baby the way I was treated by my mother. And it's not that my mother harmed us. My mother never harmed us. She just wasn't a mother. She wasn't there. A month later, after giving birth to uh, my son, it was around midnight. I was on my way from, I was leaving my aunt's house to go meet my boyfriend. And as I was leaving and pushing the stroller across the street, I heard a big crash. And I see people running. And I knew it was some kind of car accident. And I see my little brother just running. And I asked him, my little brother was with my boyfriend. I asked him, I said, hey, where's, you know? And he said he got hit by the car. And so I rushed over to see, and I see my boyfriend on the ground, and he's crying, and he was repenting of his sins. You can see that the accident was pretty bad. His leg was wide open. It was a minivan that jumped the curb. They were drag racing, and the people were high, and it crashed him into the front of the store. He pushed my little brother, who was 10 at the, 10 at the time, 10 years old, out of the way in a car, hit him and crashed him into the uh, storefront, the front of the store. You can see that it was pretty bad. Uh, he was crying. He was repenting. I actually knew the people who hit him. The paramedics came. They put him in a, uh, into the um, ambulance and rushed him to Lincoln Hospital in the Bronx where he was pronounced dead. They came out and they told me and my grandmother, they said he didn't make it. And I just thought about him repenting and asking God to forgive him of his sins. And that kept playing over and over in my mind. And so when they told me that he passed away and they asked me, they said, do you want to see the body? And I said, yes, I had my baby with me. And all I can think about was that he said he did not want to 
raise his son the way he was raised. He said he's going to raise him in God. He said he wants him to be saved. Before this accident happened, he was talking about how he wants to give his life back to Jesus Christ. He said he wants to turn back to Jesus. He wants to leave the rap, uh, um, you know, the rap industry. He don't, he went and got his uh, security license so that he can work a regular job um, just two days before he died. And so when I went in to see him, and I can still see the tears just coming down his, his face, even though he's been pronounced dead, he's gone. And I have my baby, just a month old, and I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm back at square one. This time I have a baby with no father. And I was a child with no father, no mother around. And I'm just thinking the love that I've experienced is now taken away from me. It's gone. It came and it's gone. And so just a few hours later, because he was famous, it made the news, um, it circulated. A lot of people came to the area where he passed away. And the church that he took me to, when I had went and visited this church, they had me fill out a, a, a visitor's card with your information, your phone number, your address. And when they heard about it on the news, they came and they found where I lived. And I wasn't there the first time they came. Um, my aunt told me that they came, and she said they would come back the next day. Next day they came back. They witnessed to me. They witnessed to me right there in my living room. And they asked me, they said, if you were to die today, where would you spend your long eternity? They said, if you die the same way he wasn't promised tomorrow, and you guys were preparing to meet up with each other and never made it, never was able to meet back up with each other. They asked me, they said, if I died today, where would I spend my long eternity? And they offered me salvation right there in the living room. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I didn't understand it all, but I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I got baptized. And I began to serve the Lord I began to put my faith in the Lord and trust in God. And my mother's still not around. She's still in jail. And I don't think my family understood what just happened to me. And so just a few days later, the funeral, and at the funeral, I find out that my son's father was married. I meet his wife at the funeral. You know, I'm 16 years old. All of this just happened got pregnant, you know, I'm in love, I, I'm living with him, we're living together, I have a baby, he's taken away from me, and I meet his wife, he's married, and so things just began to fall apart, fall apart, and now I'm trying to serve God with my baby, and I began to go to service, go to church twice a week. I began to go to service to finish school. I was encouraged to finish school, um, to go back. I was in high school, go back, finish school. I was encouraged to, you know, um, go ahead and get a job and take care of my baby. I didn't want my child to go into foster care. I didn't want my child to have the same struggles that I, was, that I had to face, that I had to deal with. I wanted to be able to provide and take care of my child. And I knew that I'm the only one that can do this. But now that I've given my life to Jesus, now that I'm baptized, I'm born again, and I'm trying to serve God, 
the devil crept in where he used my family to come against me. I'm 17 now, and I'm home, and I get into a fight with my uncle, who was also a drug addict as well. And we get into a fight. I call the police, press charges on him. My family was not happy. My grandmother kicked me out. She told the police I could not stay here. My baby at this time is about maybe four months. I have nowhere to go. I have nowhere to go. And the police are saying, your grandmother said you can't stay here. You're going to have to go into a group home. I, no, I can't go into a group home. I stayed in a precinct till midnight. From around maybe like six or seven till midnight, I sat in a precinct with my baby. I had nowhere to go. And one of my friends from junior high school, I decided to call her and let her know her mom, they came. I was able to stay with them for a few weeks. I got some clothes from my grandmother. Uh, I was angry at them. I didn't want anything to do with my family anymore. They put me out. I'm 17 years old. My mother's not around. I have nowhere to go. They knew I had nowhere to go. I couldn't stay with my friends for long. And so I called up my church and I told my church what was happening. And they found someone for me to stay with in church. I stay with a few people. I'm bouncing here and there. All I knew was that I did not want to backslide. I did not want to go back into the world. I didn't want to go back into the, go back to the streets and, and to try and provide for my child and give my child that, that wicked lifestyle, that upbringing that I had to be messed up just like me. And I told God that. I said, God, I don't want my child to be like me. I don't want my son to be like me. I'm trying to trust you, but I'm struggling. I kept hearing the, the, the sermons and the preaching, and, and I kept hearing the encouragement of everyone telling me that it's going to get better. God is going to change it. Just trust him. And so I continued to be faithful to the Lord and, and trust him. I never went back to the streets. I never tried to find a man to take care of me. I didn't have to turn back to, to marijuana. marijuana. I did not have to go back to selling drugs. I didn't even go back to my family. I trusted God through my struggles. And at 18 years old, I ended up getting my own apartment in Harlem. My baby is one. My son is one years old now. And I'm still faithfully serving God, faithfully serving God. And the Lord brought my husband into my life from my church. And that's what God will do when you trust him and you believe in him and you stay faithful. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Because I met a man in the church who God told I'm his wife and revealed also to me that he's my husband. And I'm thinking, I'm wondering, there's no one I know in my family that's married. I don't know anything about being a wife, but this man loved me and he was willing to be a father to my son who was not his biological son. And I could see where God was just changing me. I was, I was telling God, I said, God, all that I'm going through, I always thought I was worthless. I always thought I was garbage. I always thought that the way I was brought up, that my past 
was who I am. But I easily learned in Christ Jesus that your past does not dictate your future in God. And God was showing this to me, that he had something better, that his thoughts towards me was not evil, but they were good. And I, I had an expected end. And so I continued in the Lord, and I trust the Lord. And I got married. I got married. I met my husband. I got married. I married going on 20 years now and serving God. And I was able to raise my son my son in the church, oh, I have three children now, raised them. But what God did for me, what God did for me, because I was able to bring my family to Jesus Christ. I was able to bring, you know, them to the church for them to give their life, and some of them got baptized. So God used me when I thought that my past defined me. God showed me that it advanced me. And I was able to use my testimony, like what I'm doing now, share my testimony to those, to my relatives, to my sisters, to my brothers, to those who are in the shoes that I once filled, to bring them to Christ, bring them to Jesus Christ. And my life was turned around. And when my mother came home out of jail, I was able to bring her to church mm -hmm. for her to give her life to Jesus Christ. And that is what God has done in my life. He has changed me. I was able to have a great home. I remember where um, because, because of uh, my sisters, my brothers, my mom was in jail, we were in my aunt's apartment, and, you know, she was on government assistance, Section A, where the government helps you, um, you know, get your apartment, uh, help pay for your rent. They found out that there are people on the lease who don't belong there, so we had to go, else she would lose her apartment. And so we had to go into a shelter. Going through the shelter and being kicked out at 17, God has did a 360 turn for me. He changed my life around because I went from being homeless. I went from being homeless to owning my own home. That's what God can do for you at just, just 20. I went to owning my own home. I was homeless at one time, but I owned my own home. I had nothing. And today, trusting in God, I'm the author of two books, two powerful books. I'm an international evangelist. Not only have I preached um, around in um, America, but I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and share my testimony around the world. Physically, God has used me to touch people in different countries with my testimony, with the gospel, with my books. And that is what I'm doing with my testimony today. Shana, for, for anybody who maybe is dealing with some of the things that you dealt with, but specifically when it came to that hardened heart, right, because of the upbringing, if you could just share a little bit, and you did a little bit, but if you could give us a little bit of more insight into how God began to soften your heart in, in your processing of walking with him. What are some things that come to mind of when God was taking you through that process of kind of removing all of that you had gone through and now being with him? So I was in my apartment one day. My son was one years old. And even though I had my apartment, I was still struggling financially. And 
I had no money to buy food, and I have a one-year-old son. At this time, I have not been in contact with my family for over, an, over a year, and so I had nobody to turn to. And I got down on my knees, and I asked God. I said, God, I'm trusting you. I believe in you. I've seen what you have done so far, but I still need help. I still need help. I was struggling with forgiveness still. I was struggling with resentment towards my mother. And it was at that moment where God said, give it to me. I heard him. He said, give it to me. Give it all to me. Release it to me. And I was able to release it to him. As I cried out to him, I was able to release it to him. And I realized that, like you said, my heart became softened in, in a sense where Immediately, I reached out to my family. Hmm. I haven't spoken to them in over a year. I don't even believe they tried to find me. They knew when I left, my son was just a few months old. My son was close to being two years old now. I have not gone back to visit them. My mother was still in jail at the time. And so I reached out to my grandmother. I reached out to them, and I went to visit them. I went to visit them and I realized forgiveness. The forgiveness started to come into my heart. And even though no one has apologized, I forgave them. I forgave them. And I had to let go of that resentment towards my mother while she was in jail. In order for me to love her when she came home, God had to work on my heart while she wasn't there. Hmm. And it took a lot of prayer from my pastors. It took a lot of prayer from myself. It took a lot of fasting to release it because those are demons, spirit of unforgiveness and resentment and hatred. Those are demons. And some things, Jesus says, some things cannot come out but through prayer and fasting. That's right. But it was then when I realized, just give it all to Jesus. Give it. Give it all to him. He said, give him our burden. And that's what I did. I gave him my burden and I felt the deliverance. I felt the release. I felt that weight on my shoulder was, was gone. Shana, for people who are, are in that space of uh, holding on to resentment, holding on to all of that in their heart, what is, what is a word of encouragement that you can give them right now? Holding on to it is going to destroy you. You won't ever heal. You won't get far if you hold on to that resentment. You have to replace it with love. God is love. Jesus Christ is love. It's because he loved us that he gave his life for us, right? You have to forgive. He said forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. If you have Jesus Christ in you, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you must love. You have to love. You have to let it go. You have to forgive. It may not be easy, but it's possible. It can be done through Jesus Christ. You can't do it on your own. I couldn't do it on my own. It took Jesus to give me that love that he has for me in order for me to, to, to give out that love to those who have hurt me, to those who have abandoned me, to those who, who seem like they wanted nothing to do with me. So if you are experiencing that right now, give it to Jesus. 
and God will replace it with love. He will give you a heart of forgiveness because he, he has forgiven you. If you ask him for forgiveness, he said he's faithful and just to forgive you. And sometimes we have to forgive even when the person has not asked for forgiveness. That's the love of God. That's deliverance. That's what salvation does for you. It changes your heart. Shana, if you could speak to you as a child, if you could have a moment to speak with that child, what what would you say to yourself? I love you. Jesus loves you. That your past, whatever you're going through, God has something greater. You have a purpose. You are called. Before you was even formed in your mother's womb, God has a purpose for you. That it may seem like there's no hope. You may feel unloved. You may feel like the streets, the streets is the answer. You may feel like turning to people who are in the same situation as you are will help you um, feel loved or comfort you. I would tell you, come to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. God can change it. You have a purpose in God. You're here for a reason. You're here for a reason. God has kept you for a reason. Shana, who is Jesus to you? Jesus to me is exactly who he says he is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the creator of this world and all things in it. He is a friend of all. He is a healer of the sick. He's a provider. He's a deliverer. He's a way maker. He is the giver of life and peace to all who will accept him. He is the Christ, not because Peter said it, but because he has revealed himself to me and I'm able to be a witness to what Peter has said. He is the son of God. He is God. And there is no other like Jesus Christ. He is the only answer. Shana, any last words for people who may be watching your testimony and have gotten to this part of uh, uh, your story? Yes. Those of you who are watching, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, get to know him. He says in Matthew 11 and verse 28, he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's calling you who are broken, those of you who are oppressed, suffering, and troubled. He said, come unto me and find rest for your soul. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Nothing and no one else will meet your deepest needs. Not money, not fame, not a successful career, not a car, not a house, not even religion, not sex, not alcohol, not drugs. Without God... Your life is broken. Your life will be needy. Your life will be in vain because he created you to be connected to him. So if you're not saved, give your life to Jesus. He's calling for you. He says today is the day of salvation. 
He will forgive you. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It does not matter where you come from. Jesus is calling you. And those of you who are in the body of Christ, my sisters and my brothers, my encouragement to you is to endure. Endure to the end. I know the times are hard. I know it's not easy. I know the devil is out seeking whom he may devour. But endure to the end. Jesus is your prize. Don't compromise. Don't bow. Don't give in. Endure until you reach heaven. Heaven, you will be in heaven longer than you will be on this earth. I need you, Lord I need you, Lord I need you right now. I need you right now. And it could not 
take your Bibles in your hand, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We say Happy New Year to everybody who is here. We greet you in the name of the Lord, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Once you find it, if you can stand to your feet to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 26, right at verse 26, 26, 26, Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Take your seats. Not going to be before you long. Just... For a few minutes, I want to talk about the meal that heals. The meal that heals. Uh, I, I don't know if you would exactly call this a sermon as much as you would call this a teaching and an impartation. And I hope you would take notes and listen uh, as we start this year off. One of the things that I, I loved um, about going to seminary when I was in seminary was how it got you back in touch with the original context and the original history of the Bible and introduced you to original meanings of many things that were were written in the Bible. One of the uh, unfortunate things that has happened in the modern church and in the westernized uh, coloring of the church uh, is that early truths that were once believed and practiced by first and second century believers were gradually removed and replaced by traditions of religious leaders who wanted things to be more their way than God's way. Isn't it interesting that this this adding to what God said is, is not something new. That we think that that's something new that we add stuff that ain't got nothing to do with the Lord. That, that's not new. They, they started that whenever the church got organized, leaders began to reinterpret and add on do's and don'ts in order to fit their own selfish needs for being comfortable. So now we end up with laws and rules that have nothing to do with God, salvation, or ministry, but everything to do with our own selfish propensities and proclivities. They were then, as many are now, committed to the institution, but not committed to Christ. And as a result, some of the power of the practices of the early church have been lost. One of those such things is what we do today is the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion. When we think of this table now, when we observe it now, we talk about it being a reminder of the death of Jesus for the penalty of sins of the world and how this table serves to remind us of what he did for us. But y'all, so much has been added to this that ain't have nothing to do with it. 
when you should do it. If you don't do it on the first Sunday, you're not doing it right. If you're not doing it every month, you're not doing it right. Nobody's saying anything. What the table ought to look like. Who should be the ones giving it out. Don't lay nothing on the table. We, we've, we've put so much stuff into this that now we've lost the power of what really happened on that night. Uh, give me about 15 minutes. You, you've got to remember who they were and where they were. They were Jews and they were at the feast of the Passover. Uh, there, there, there are a few words we use to describe this table. I don't know if we really understand what they mean and what they imply for us. One of those words we use all the time is the word sacrament. That church says sacrament. Yeah, the sacraments are those things that we think uh, is the bread and the drink, but we don't really understand. The word sacrament is a Latin term. And they got that term, the early Catholic church, watch me now, got that term from the military. Because a sacrament was the oath that a soldier took to be faithful to his commander. <laughs> so that when you take the sacrament, what you are doing is taking an oath to tell your commander and chief that no matter what comes your way, you will always be loyal. The sacrament is not just something you take about the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but when you take the sacrament, you are saying to the Lord, you are my commander. And no matter what comes my way, no matter what struggles I have, no matter what temptations come my way, no matter what gets in the way, I will always be loyal to you because I'm grateful for what you did for me. Yeah, the, the other thing we call it, we call it the Eucharist. Let the church say Eucharist. Yeah, yeah some of y'all tried to say it. It's, it's a Greek term that means to give thanks. Mm -hmm. So that every time you come to this table, you ought to come saying, thank you. Okay, thank you, because you didn't have to die for me, but you did. Thank you, because with everything I did, I ought to suffer the penalty for myself. Thank you that you sent your son to die for me before I even messed up, knowing that when I got here, I was going to mess up. Thank you that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. You ought not ever get to the point where you think you earned the table or you work for the table, but when you know you are sinner, saved by grace, every time you see the table, you'll say, God, I thank you. I wish I had some folk in here today who could just say, God, thank you today. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you keep me. Thank you that you hold me. Thank you that you sustain me. Thank you that you cover me. Thank you that you love me in spite of me. I dare you just to say thank you. The other term we use for this table is communion. Found something interesting, preachers, that that word communion, the Greek word communion, comes from the same word koinonia. Huh. 
We think in our westernized definition, koinonia means fellowship. It's, it's deeper than that. Koinonia means intimate partnership. <laughs> yeah. That when I come to the table, I come to the table with people with whom I have an intimate partnership with. Which means I can't come to the table acting like I'm an enemy of somebody who's at the table with me. Okay, don't get rough enough. Right. I, I can't come to the table and be pure of heart if I come to the table knowing I haven't done people right. So talk, talk, talk to me now. That, that's why Paul said, let a man, let a woman examine him or herself and don't eat of that bread or drink of that cup unworthily because when you come to this table, you ought to be able to look around at everybody at the table and say, I'm treating him right, I'm treating her right, I'm not lying on him, I'm not gossiping about him, I'm not trying to destroy him. Uh, in intimate partnerships, it's like a spouse. A spouse is not always perfect. Amen. A spouse is not always right. To be an intimate partner doesn't mean I think you're always right. But to be an intimate partner means I know how to handle you when you're not right. My intimate partner, when they're not right, I don't make their wrong public. When they're not right, I don't drag them through stuff that doesn't give God glory. And you ought not come to the table without practicing intimate partnership. In other words, I'm almost done. The other word, they, they say it's the Passover. It's Passover. We, we, we all, we went to Sunday school. If you didn't start 2010, go this morning. Um... We all know what Passover is. The Hebrew nation had become slaves to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was unwilling to release them. And so God sent all of these plagues upon Egypt. He sent ten. And the tenth one involved the death angel moving from house to house, taking the life of the firstborn. And so to protect the Hebrews from, destroying, from the destroying death angel, God required each house to place the blood of the lamb on the left, the right, and the top post of the door, and then eat all of the lamb before midnight. And when they did that, two miracles would happen. Now, uh, I want you to un un unveil that top part, get that bread about ready. Just get the bread. Don't take it. Just get it about ready. Uh, yeah, you get it about ready. You're going to shout when you take this bread today. Don't take it yet. Don't take it till I tell you. But... When they would put the blood on the doorposts and when they would eat the rest of the lamb, two miracles would happen. Are you, are you listening to me? There were two things that would happen when they would do that. The first thing that would happen, watch this, is that the destroying angel was restrained from entering the house marked by the blood of the lamb. <laughs> that the death angel, as the death angel came through the city, would pass over the house of anybody who had the blood. God help me in here. The, the angel was coming through and going through every house to kill the firstborn. But to those who had the blood of the lamb, when the death angel got to that house, it was as if the death angel knew the blood was the sign. Don't mess with that house right there. The blood signified covenant and 
covering, watch this, Passover ought to make you shout. Because it means that you were able to live through the thing you were supposed to die in. God, help me right through in here. I'm trying not to make nobody shout, but some of us have been through some things that should have wiped us out. Some of us have been through some things that should have killed us. Some of us have been through some things that should have destroyed us. See, some of y'all can only shout over money because you won't stop, but there are others of us who are just thankful that we are alive. I wish I had somebody today who could say, I'm thankful that I'm alive when I know I ought to be dead. I've done enough that I ought to be dead. I drank enough. I smoked enough. I partied enough. But thank you, when death came knocking on my door, it saw the blood of the Lamb and said, they can't be touched. I tell you, just touch somebody and tell them, I'm just glad I'm alive. Oh, no, that was the wrong neighbor. Tell somebody, I'm just glad I'm alive. You can shout over money and you can shout over clothes and you can shout over stuff. That's not why I'm shouting. I'm shouting because I woke up this morning in my right mind and I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. But here's the other miracle that would happen. We're getting ready to take this bread in a minute. <laughs> uh, they, they were to eat the lamb. Mm-hmm. Yes. Jesus said, take, eat. He said, don't do it yet. He said, take, eat. This is my body. He was the lamb of God. Um, they would eat the lamb. The book of Psalms, Psalm 105, 37, says that God brought them out of Egypt with silver and gold. And there was not one sick among them. Oh, God, I feel your presence, Hollis. Uh, yes, that when they came out, uh, uh, if there was some sick who were in, they got healed going out. Uh, um, so that, oh, God, help me. Here we go. When they ate the lamb, they experienced supernatural healing. God help me. I wish I had some folk that believed in healing. That when you take the body of Jesus Christ, it's not just the reminder that his body was broken for you, but by faith when you eat the lamb, you say to yourself, I receive supernatural healing. If there's anybody sick in here today, I declare that when you take this bread, there will be supernatural healing in your body. I declare to anybody today that if you're broke, there will be healing in your finances, healing in your marriage, healing in your mind, healing of your body, healing of your children, healing of your spirit. Is there anybody in here who can say, God, I need a healing right now. I need a healing in my life. Then lift up that bread in your hand and take eat. This is the body of Jesus Christ. Eat the blood of the bread right now. And as you put it in your mouth, I dare you to say, I am healed. No, you didn't say it right. I am healed. Cancer can't have me. Arthritis can't have me. Headaches can't have me. Depression can't have me. 
Death can't have me. I am healed. Woo. I dare somebody to say I'm healed. Yes, sir. No, y'all don't. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we have been healed. Oh! Yes. Every time you take that bread this year, say to yourself, I'm healed supernaturally. What medicine can't do, the lamb can do. What doctors can't do, the lamb can do. What banks can't do, the lamb can do. I am healed. I dare you just lay your hand on your neighbor's shoulder and say, be healed. Be healed, be healed, be healed. Turn to somebody on the other side, tell them, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed. Oh, my God. If you ate the bread, touch yourself and say, I'm healed, I'm healed. I don't claim sickness. I don't claim depression. I don't claim discouragement. I am healed. Oh, my So when they ate the lamb, they experienced supernatural healing. Somebody's going to leave out of here today. And when you leave out of here, you're going to leave out of here healed. Oh, my God. When somebody walks out of here today, you're going to leave out of here feeling better in your body. I know we don't like to talk about it a whole lot in the Baptist church, but I believe in the supernatural healing power of the Holy Ghost. I, I know we don't like to tread on that, but I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring healing into the body right now. If I speak to cancer, I believe it's God. If I speak to arthritis, I believe it's got to go. If I speak to headache, if I speak to depression, if I speak to discouragement, because I've got the lamb and I have faith, it's got to go. Be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed, pain be gone, headache be gone, nausea be gone, be gone in the name of Jesus. Oh my God. I don't know who this is for, but somebody's in here today, and you don't need the healing, but there's somebody in your family, somebody back home, you left that sick, and God told me to tell you that because you got enough faith, and you're standing in the gap, he's going to allow your faith to bring healing to their body in the name of Jesus. Oh, my God. Then there was the cup. 
I'm almost done. That was the cup. Um, the, the, way, the way the story reads in the Gospels, it implies something that's not necessarily true. Because the Gospels, well, Matthew and Mark say he took the cup. Luke says he took a cup. That is very significant. Now, remember I told you, forget our westernized understanding and remember who they are. They're Jews. Jesus was a Jew who practiced and believed in his Jewish faith and customs. During the Passover, there was not one cup. There were four cups. Hmm. <laughs> there were four cups. There were four cups. Yes. Um, um, there are details in, in these cups. Each cup at the Passover identified something different about the Passover story. Uh, we're going to set it off in here. Um, I would tell you to take that lid off that drink, but you better take it off and put it down because you might. Uh, the first cup was the cup of sanctification, signifying that they were a people who had been set apart by God. The second cup, I'm going to put it all together, was the cup of affliction. <laughs> Because affliction comes with being set apart. Now let me say that one again. The second cup was the cup of affliction. Because affliction comes with being set apart. Jesus said in this life, not you may, not you might, not it's possible, not it's probable. You shall have tribulation. Don't you get fooled by some of this TV preaching you had you here. Being saved does not make you immune to trouble. Being saved does not make you immune to struggle. Being saved does not make you immune to difficulty. As a matter of fact, one of the evidences of the anointing on your life are the difficulties that come in your life. The difficulty is not the sign of God's embarrassment or disagreement or your disobedience. But the, the difficulty sometimes is the sign of the anointing that's on your life. So there was the cup of sanctification. There was the cup of affliction. Then there was the cup of redemption. Signifying that God came down through Moses and delivered them. Mm -hmm. The last cup was what was called the cup of consummation. Or the Hallel cup. Signifying that he did not just deliver them from Egypt, but he's delivering them to a promised land. <laughs> oh, help me, Holy Spirit. The first cup was the cup of sanctification. They were a set-apart people. The second cup was the cup of affliction because it comes with being set apart. The third cup was the cup of redemption because in the midst of affliction, when you cannot deliver yourself, God came to deliver. And the fourth cup was the cup of consummation because God never comes to get you out of without having some place to take you into. God, help me preach in here today, Holy Spirit. There were four 
cups don't miss where I'm about to go. Jesus lifted up one cup. Now I said to myself, Holy Spirit, he's a Jew. I know he's got four cups. Why do we only see him lifting up one? And the Holy Spirit said to me, because what Jesus was telling them is that before now you had four cups. But now since I've come, you've got four things in one cup. He said, because you've got me, I came to sanctify you. I came to redeem you. I came to keep you in affliction. But then I'm coming back to get you. And I'm taking you back to a land where there'll be no more sickness, no more heartache, no more sadness. Which means that's why you have to shout, thank you for the cup. Take that cup in your hand, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, I feel your presence, God. Just repeat after me. This cup means I'm sanctified because I've been set apart. This cup means I can handle affliction because Jesus is in me. This cup means I've been redeemed because he saved me from the penalty of sin. This cup means he's coming back to get me and take me back to live with him forever. So now take of the blood of Jesus, all of you. I want you to grab somebody and tell them you're sanctified, you're redeemed, you're healed of your affliction, you've got a home in God. I wish I had somebody who knew how to shout, I'm sanctified, I'm different, I'm special, I'm set apart, I'm redeemed, I'm saved, I'm I wish I had somebody who could shout right now, I'm special, I'm sanctified, I'm redeemed, I'm set up, no, I wish I had somebody who could say thank you God that I'm sanctified, I'm set apart, I'm redeemed, and I'm on my way to glory. Oh, I wish I had somebody who could shout over that today. In the old church, they shout just because they saved. I wish I had somebody who could say, God, I thank you that I'm saved. If I don't get a job, if I don't get a new house, if I don't drive a new car, if none of that happens, thank you that I'm saved. Oh, I thank you that I'm saved. Thank you that the Lamb heals me. Thank you that the blood redeems me. Thank you that the blood keeps me. Hallelujah. 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 I'm saved, hallelujah. I'm sanctified, hallelujah. I'm set apart, hallelujah. I'm on my way to glory, hallelujah. I want everybody to stand. I want everybody to stand. Oh, my God. Woo. 
I declare supernatural healing all over this room. I stretch out the hand of my authority as a bishop in the Lord's church. And I declare today healing all over this place. I declare today I speak with authority to every sickness. I call it by name. Cancer, HIV, arthritis, depression, rheumatoid arthritis, whatever it might be, I speak to you today. I declare supernatural healing. Now, God, give us the faith to believe it. Because it can't just happen because somebody speaks it. But give us the faith to believe it today. Thank you that we saved, God. Thank you that we're set apart. Thank you that we live through some things that we should have died in. Hmm. And every time we come to this table, don't let us come with routine and tradition. Don't let us just come because it's time to. But let us come when we're sick, believing that by the time I partake, I'll be healed. Let us come renewing our loyalty as a sacrament. Let us come with thanksgiving as a Eucharist. Let us love each other as brothers and sisters in intimate partnership. And I give your name to praise. <laughs> Thank you for the lamb. Oh my, thank you for the lamb. Thank you for the lamb of God. Oh, oh, thank you for the lamb of God. Worthy is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you for the lamb. Subscribe to Brother Rollins' videos for Christ on YouTube. We post brand new content every week with powerful preaching from ministers and pastors all across the nation that seek to encourage people all over the world through the word of Jesus Christ. You will also find gospel songs and old-time hymns that have inspired generations of Christians. Subscribe today and hit the bell so you never miss new content. YouTube.com slash Brother Rollins. Spell it. B-R-O-T-H-A Rollins. Brother Rollins videos for Christ on YouTube. I've run out of answers, I've run out of time And I'm so confused that I'm losing my mind It's gonna take a miracle to help me this time I'm traveling a road that has not one time
I'm trying to see the forest, but there's this one tree. Can't understand why I'm sinking so deep. Help me. Help me. Won't you have mercy? Set my soul free, please. And let the bell in my and the Apostolic Church of God as we praise and worship the Lord together.
let the church say praise the Lord. Let the church say thank you, Jesus. Once again, we are back in the house of prayer, and we're giving God the praise and the glory for all that he has done for us. As we go before the Lord in prayer, let us remember those who have called in and asked for prayer and whose names we have placed in our prayer registry book. We know that God is a prayer answering God. I do want you to spend a special prayer for the France family. Uh, Brother France lost his sister, and one of his sisters, I believe it's Patricia, really having a hard time. We know that God is able to do all things. So I ask you to really pray for that family. May God continue to smile upon them. Let us remember our country. Let us pray for our leaders. And let us pray that God's will will be done in all of our lives. Let us call upon the name of the Lord. Eternal God, our Father, we bow our heads before you and we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We cannot praise you. We cannot thank you enough because thou art God. Thy mercy endures forever. We ask, O oh Lord, that you remember the France family and all the other families who have lost loved ones. We pray that you stretch forth your hand, Lord, and touch them. Strengthen them this, in this, their hour of bereavement, in their hour of sorrow. We ask, O oh Lord, that you will continue, Lord, to smile upon them as they go through, Lord, this particular uh, sad period. We ask, O oh Father, that you will remember the saints of God who have come here from far and near. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will answer our prayers as each of us have our own particular problem. Each of us are wrestling with our own situation. Hear us, O oh Lord. Stretch forth your hand and touch this entire congregation. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will bless your servant as he seeks to bring forth your holy word, that your word might have free course, that souls will be saved, your people will be strengthened. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our responsive scripture reading is taken from Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verses 15 through 17, and verses 19 and 20. So then, that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord and Savior Christ. And all the people said,
thank our choir. All our musicians. Would you mention let the musicians stand up? All our musicians. Praise. Let's give all these musicians a great big hand. Thank God for you. They have inspired our hearts today. They have inspired our hearts. After all these years, the blood still has miraculous power. The sun, the sun is still as strong as it was when Joshua commanded it to stand still. commanded them to be separated from dry land and the blood of Jesus is just as strong today as it was when he shed it on Calvary over 2,000 years ago. I want to thank the choir and Sister Kelly Longmire who led that song that was so inspiring to us. And now the time has come for the word of the Lord. My subject is faith in Jesus. That's the same subject that I had this morning, but I want to deal with it in a different way than I did at our earlier service. My subject, faith in Jesus, and I'm going to use as a text 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It's a wonderful passage of scripture and it's one that I turn to very often, not just to preach, but just for my own personal uh, inspiration and dedication. All of us need a scripture to read from time to time. And this one holds a great deal of pathos. poignant uh, atmosphere about it. I think it, it's so because it's Paul's last letter. He wrote many letters. But this is the final one, just before his death. He's writing it from a prison cell. And he, he writes to his, his son in the gospel, Timothy. This is his second letter to him. And he says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to Keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. As I indicated to you that this is a passage that I always receive a lot of strength from, 
It's a passage of scripture that brings joy to the hearts of all true believers. When one has faith in Jesus Christ and can truly say with the Apostle Paul, I know in whom I have believed, that person has an assurance, a confidence, a certitude that can strengthen his or her resolve as nothing else can. To say that you're not ashamed. Here the apostle is in prison, but he is not ashamed of being there because he knows in whom he has committed not only his earthly interests, but to whom he has committed his soul. The scriptures say that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The man or the woman who believes in Jesus Christ is a person who believes in redeeming grace. I just finished two and a half days of, or light, evenings of lecturing in St. Louis, two hours a night on the justification by faith and the final perseverance of the saints of God. For two hours on Thursday, for two hours on, on Friday, and an hour and a half Saturday morning, I talked on this subject. It is a joy to the hearts of any person who can have faith in the Lord to know that you have committed your soul your eternal destiny to him. And that God has, is with us now and has been with us and will continue to be with us. I am not ashamed of my ancestry. My ancestry, my ancestors were slaves. My grandfather, my grandmother was born in slavery. My father was born 11 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And I am proud. of African-Americans, the black race in America. I am proud of it because our ancestors 
than 50 years, 250 years. Labored in chains. But even in slavery, One slave said, said, boss, slavery, slavery is tough. They would go to the family, only place they could meet, and call on God. Their lives were so miserable. No happiness there. And someone tried to demonstrate how miserable their lives were by giving life to a river. The old man river just keeps on rolling along. I am a slave of I'm tired of living. I'm afraid of dying. But old man river just keeps on rolling along. Our ancestors, don't hang your heads when they talk about your ancestors in slavery. They survived the horrors of that epoch. And you, their offspring, have come further, done more in the short period of time since the end of slavery than any other race on the face of the earth. you have done it against fierce opposition. You have done it against the, the onslaughts of the Ku Klux Klan. You have done it against the onslaughts of every racist group of society that raised its ugly head. You have done it uh, when you were discriminated against and segregated against. You have done it when you couldn't get jobs. You have done it when they were lynching your sons and your nephews and your uncles. You have done it. You have come a long way. And I think that more of us leaders ought to talk more about what we have done and where we have come from than to keep on harping on what we are doing and where we have not come from. Every time I look around, we're talking about how bad things are. Every time I look around, we're talking about time and we're talking about all the bad things, but nobody is telling us where we have came from, from slavery to where we are today. Everybody say, oh, America, America is a terrible place to live. I love America. My mother and father was born in America. My mother and my grandfather and grandmother was born in America. I was born in America. All of you were born in America. And I don't see any of you rushing out and getting passports to go anywhere else.
My brothers and sisters, we've come this far by faith. I'm talking about faith. That's why if we had not had faith in God, where would we be? You can say what you want to say about black people. You can say about all the hypocrites in the church. You can talk about them. You can talk about them. Oh, they go out to nightclubs and they drink and they do all these other things. But let me tell you about African-Americans. No matter what they do in the week, you can find them in church on Sunday. Not, not, not that I am endorsing hypocrisy. I'm not endorsing it at all. But I'm telling you now that unless a person comes to church, they're never going to get saved. Thank God that they come to church on Sunday morning. The churches are full on Sunday morning because uh, even though they don't have the, 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 the vision that you have, even though that they don't have the clear understanding that you have who have been saved, yet there is, a, there is something in the heart of these men and women that say that I love God. And I might have been out there drinking all night on Sunday, on Saturday night, but Sunday morning I'm going to wash my face, I'm going to brush my teeth, I'm going to put on my Sunday go to meeting clothes, and I'm going to find my way to the house of God. This has nothing to do with endorsing hypocrisy. It has something to do with having some faith in God. And some of you here today who have not yet been saved, thank God that you are here. I am not interested in where you were last night. I am not interested in what you were doing last night. I am not interested in where you went last night. I am glad that you are here this morning to hear this sermon because somebody here needs to be saved. And I'm talking about having faith in God. A person who has faith in God has been delivered from despair and defeatism. A person who has faith in God has been delivered from dark regrets and forebodings. A person who has faith with God has been delivered from gloom and anguish. A person who has faith in God uh, do not have these terrible uh, depression uh, mentalities uh, as their companions day by day because as something that says I have faith in God. If I wake up this morning deep in depression, I know that before the day is over, God is going to bring me out. When I go uh, to the doctor, I know that God is going to bring me out. This morning after service, as I sit in the lobby uh, and uh, shaking hands, uh, a wonderful young lady came to me and said, oh, I want to thank God. I want to thank God for the prayers of the saints. Uh, I was told by my doctor that there might be a problem that I might have cervical cancer. And oh, I was so praying, but I went to, uh, had my examination, and I want to let you know, Pastor, thank God uh, I have no cancer at all. Isn't that, listen. I can tell you that when you have faith in God, God is a deliverer. Faith in Jesus Christ brings a recognition of a supreme power. 
When you have faith in him, look, there's nothing that can stop you. You may have a mean supervisor on your job who is making life miserable for you. Listen, uh, that might be a mountain. I talked about that this morning, about Jesus said, if you have the faith of a, of a, uh, of a mustard seed, you now that wasn't what I said. I was talking about Jesus said, Jesus said, he said, you have faith, you can say to this mountain, you can say to this mountain, be removed uh, and, and, and fall into the sea and uh, it will happen. God was not talking about real mountains. He was talking about the mountains of despair and the mountains of gloom and the mountains of hate and the mountains of misery I don't, and the mountains of a mean supervisor. That, help, Lord. That you can't get around. You, you went to his supervisor, nowhere to go. But let me tell you something. If you put that mean supervisor in the hand of God, God has a way of giving you victory over that person who is trying to do you in. Have faith in God. Don't get mad and quit your job because somebody else. Don't get mad and walk out there going ticket and getting unemployment compensation because you let somebody drive you off your job. Get your head up, square your shoulders back, and say in your mind, don't say it to the, don't say it to the supervisor. Don't say it to the supervisor. But in your mind, say, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Don't forget what I said now. Don't tell the supervisor that. He don't need to know that. She don't need to know that. That's your prayer to God. I'll tell you now that you don't have to stay poor, and I'm not a prosperity preacher. But I'm telling you now that some folk are poor because uh, they think poor. Some people are poor because uh, they, don't have no, they don't have any faith in anything. But when you lift your head up high and say, I can uh, do it. I am a super conqueror. I am someone that God has loved, that Jesus died for. There's nothing on earth that can turn me around. I can win. I know that to be a fact. There was a leper. There was a leper who met Jesus. And that leper said, Lord, if you will, thou canst make me clean. The centurion said, my servant lies at home sick with the palsy. Speak the word only, and he shall be healed. These are people who had faith in God. There was another woman who had a, a issue of blood. We call it hemorrhaging. She had this hemorrhaging for 12 long years. She had went to doctors that couldn't do her any good. In fact, the Bible said she was worse. But one day she heard that Jesus was passing by. She heard that the master who had opened the eyes of the blind was passing by. She heard that the master who had caused the lame to walk was passing by. She had heard that the man who had caused the man with the withered arm to stretch it out and it became whole was passing by. And she said in her own mind, she didn't say nothing to anybody else, 
But she said to her own mind, if I can get enough close to him, if I can worm my way through the crowd, if I can get out on my knees and crawl so that I can just touch, so I can just touch the hem of his garment, that I will be made whole. She got down on the ground and got close to him and touched the hem of his garment. He didn't lay hands on her. He did not anoint her with oil. He didn't do anything. He, but she just touched his garment. She didn't even touch him. She just touched the hem of his garment. Soon as she touched the hem of his garment, Jesus said, I feel virtue has gone out of me. Somebody touched me. Oh, Lord, look at the crowd. Somebody touched me. Yes, but this was a different touch. I feel that virtue has gone out of me. The Lord has touched you because you prayed. The Lord bless your children because you prayed. The Lord bless your home because you prayed. Don't ever stop praying. Call on God and don't let anybody tell you that all you can do is ask God one time. I've heard that story. Just pray once. Don't ask him anymore. Just pray one time. Don't believe it. Call on God. If you've got a toothache, if your tooth is hurting you and you pray and ask God to heal that tooth and the next day that tooth is still hurting, don't fool yourself and saying I'm healed and that tooth is throbbing in your jaw. Call on the Lord. And the Lord, I prayed for you last week. It's still here. I prayed last month. It's still here. Lord, I'm calling on you this morning uh, to touch this tooth. Uh, heal this. I'll tell you that one day, somehow, somewhere, God is going to move. God is in the healing business. He is in the saving business. He is in the business of lifting you up uh, out of the muck and the mire of sin and shame and corruption and putting your feet on a solid rock and your life will be changed forevermore. You will be a better man and a better girl, a better boy and a better woman. You will be because of God in your life. Oh, I meet a lot of people. I met a young man out there in the hall. He said, this morning, he said, Bishop, pray for me. He said, I just came out of the crack house. He said, pray for me. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get over it, uh, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I don't feel good this morning. I said, son, I'm going to pray for you because I know that God is going to bring you out. I don't care what you got. God is able to bring you out. You may be subject to dope, but God is going to bring you out. You may have a dependency on this, but God is going to bring you out. Some of you are not in crack houses. There are some folk who don't go to crack houses. you got enough money to get it some other kind of way. And nobody knows that you're in that situation, but you're spending $300, $400, $500 a week on that habit. Why do you have that habit? I'll tell you why. Because you haven't put your trust in the Lord. But if you put your trust in God, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, like he healed the woman with the issue of blood, like he healed the man with the withered hand, like he opened up the mind, the man, the man's eyes who was blind, the Lord will heal you of your addiction. And I know he will because I got too many people in this church who were addicted and who have now been cleaned for years and years and years. Don't tell me he can't do it because they are here. And some of us were not addicted to narcotics, but we were addicted to other things. But whatever your addiction might be, there are addictions and there are addictions and there are addictions. Whatever it is, the Lord is able to move it. He is able to do it. This man Paul says, I am persuaded. I am persuaded that he is able. He is able, brothers and sisters. He is able. 
This man was in prison. He didn't know whether, uh, how he was going to die. He knew that his time on this earth had come to an end because he said, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. And now I'm ready to be offered. He didn't know whether he was going to be burned alive at the stake. He didn't know whether he was going to be thrown into the arena and be killed by wild beasts. He did not know how he would meet his death. We know now from church history that he was beheaded. He was decapitated. But this man put his faith and trust in God and said, I have committed my soul to him against that day. Paul didn't elaborate. He didn't tell me what that day was. But that day, whatever it is, that day of our death, whatever it is, that day when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that day when we attempted and tested and tried, that day when sickness takes its heavy toll, that day which was made for all of the days, Jesus is able to keep that which you have committed unto him against that day. I don't know what it is, but there's coming a day that we're going to say, this is the day. That day is now. But I have committed my soul to him. I have committed my life to him. And that's what church is all about. Church is not, is not all about just people who are wonderful and good who come. The church is about those of us who are saved and still struggling. There are some people who have a lot of faith. Some people have some faith. Some people have a little faith. But every child of God has some faith. And whether it's small or large or larger, you always need the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, let me leave this to you. I'm closing now. Jesus said that when the spirit of truth has come, he said it comes to abide forever. The Holy Ghost is not a spirit that comes and goes. He's with you when you are doing wonderful, but then when you make a mistake, he's gone. He's with you when everything is going smooth, but as soon as you commit a sin, soon as happens, oh, he's on. No, no. The Spirit of God, Jesus said, comes to abide. I love that word abide. It, does, it means more than visit. It means to stay. The Holy Spirit has come to stay. And you who are without Christ, let me tell you something. When you say, I'm going to give my life to the Lord, Forget about your friends. I had to forget about mine. Over 55 years ago, I was baptized in Jesus' name. Over 55 years ago, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I had a whole lot I had to give up. I had a whole lot I had to get rid of. But nothing that I gave up, nothing that I got, I got rid of has ever caused me any regret whatsoever. Whatever, whatever we had to give up, God has got something better to put in his place. Being a child of God is not just being a church member. Being a child of God is not just someone whose name is on the roll. Being a child of God is not someone who's got a seat in a pew. 
you are someone that Jesus Christ gave his life for. Jesus called you his sheep. And the Lord Jesus said, my sheep, hear my voice. He said, I know them. Praise God. I know them. The Lord knows you. He knows your home address. He knows your telephone number. He knows your ins. He knows your outs. He knows your ups. He knows your downs. He knows your good parts. He knows your bad parts. He said, I know them. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never my father who is greater than all has given them unto me and no one is able to pluck them out of my father's hand do you believe it someone here today that would like to give your life to Christ. Get up out of your seat and come forward. Get up and come forward. Come on now, son. God bless you over there, young man. Come on, come on. friend. The Lord is talking to you. I'm glad I don't look like what I've been through. All right? Look at somebody and say, I'm glad I don't look like what I've been through. No, you said it to the wrong person. Grab the person behind you and tell them, hey, you. I'm glad I don't look like what I've been through. Come on,
www.jesusinthemorningradio.com Give you this one. This one is called I Put God On. Yeah. 
Anything that you may be going through, any situation that you may be facing, anything that you may be struggling with, step outside of yourself Come on now. and put God on Come it. On Amen. 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 Look at Ricky. Look at Ricky. Put God on the 